Awesome. Well, hey, it's great to see you. Everybody doing all right? Yes? We're, we're thinking about it. So, well, regardless, I'm glad you're here. Uh, just a couple things before we dive in. One, if any of you drove by the new property that we purchased yesterday, you may have noticed that a new fence has gone up. Uh, all that means is that we start renovations finally tomorrow. So pretty exciting stuff. Uh, we're going to... We're going to do our best to keep you posted over the next six months or so on progress and uh, let you know how that's looking and and how you can be praying. But go ahead and start praying for the beginning of that renovation process. And if you want to help us now by creating space, just remember, we've got other opportunities for you outside of 10 o'clock. 8.30 continues to fill up, uh, but 5 o'clock, there's a lot of space there as well. So if you can come to church a little later in the day and give up your seat for some people who aren't with us yet... Uh, That'd be awesome. The second thing I want to share with you is this. We just had a team from our church come back this last week from Burkina Faso, West Africa, a little country where we work there. And uh, while they were there, 51 people from an unreached people group village came to know Christ as Savior. So how incredible is that? It's awesome. Uh, I would just say to you, if you were on that team, man, thanks for your obedience. This church is proud of you, and we are grateful for how God used you while you were there. Well, look, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it, and uh, let's head to Mark chapter 1 together. Mark chapter 1. Last month, we kicked off a year-long series on the book of Mark, and today we're actually going to wrap up chapter 1 and at the same time get into chapter 2. So as you're finding your way there, I want you to turn your brains on and think about the answer to this question. If you could ask God for anything and you knew he'd give it to you, what would you ask for? If you could ask him for anything and he'd give it to you, what would you ask for? I'm sure that if we pass the microphone around the room today, we'd probably get a ton of different answers to that question. Some of us would probably ask for physical healing. Others would ask God to repair a marriage or some type of relationship. Some of us would probably ask God to free us up from certain attitudes, emotions, feelings, regrets. And then let's be real honest, some of us would probably just ask God to give us some more money, right? Like hook me up. And all the broke college kids in the room said, Yeah, some of them are here, and uh, we just heard the reality of their situations. We love you, but we don't have any money for you, all right? Now, look, regardless of your answer, here's what I want you to think about next, all right? Why would you ask for that thing? Why would you ask for that thing? Here's my bet. I bet you'd ask for it because deep down you believe that if you had that thing, you'd finally be content, that it would somehow save you from feelings of unhappiness, discouragement, defeat, mediocrity, because that's what our world tells us, right? That if we as people can figure out a way to fulfill our deepest desires, then and only then will we know true happiness. But here's the reality and, and the truth. Even if God gave you that thing you would ask him for, if he gave it to you today, eventually you'd be less content than you are right now. Because over time, you would discover that that thing cannot bring you the joy and contentment you once thought it could. Uh, Several years ago, depending on your age, you might remember this, but several years ago, a columnist named Cynthia Heimel wrote about this reality in a publication uh, called The Village Voice. And she was writing about celebrities that she knew personally both before and after they were famous. And I want to show you what she said. Look at this. She wrote, I pity celebrities. No, I do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. 
You see, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness. Look, it had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And so she's just saying, I feel sorry for these people. Because everything they wanted in life, that they got, and it only made life worse, which led her to include probably the most shocking line in the article. She went on to say this, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Now look up here. I need you to know today that, that God, the God we're here to worship and celebrate, is not who she describes him to be. God loves us way too much to play those kinds of cruel jokes on us. Instead, God's desire, don't miss it, God's desire is to go deeper than even our deepest desires in order to meet our greatest need. Because God knows that until that need is met, we'll never know the lasting joy and contentment we're looking for. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Our greatest need and what God has done to meet it. So if your Bibles are open, we're going to dive in in just a moment. Uh, I'll set the scene for us and then we'll pick up in verse 40, all right? We learned last week that by this time in the book of Mark, Jesus had gained major popularity. But it wasn't the good kind. Uh, The people in Capernaum where he was preaching and doing ministry, they didn't really want Jesus, they just wanted his miracles. And so Jesus knows this and and he decides to leave. I'm getting out of Capernaum and I'm going to go throughout Galilee, I'm going to preach and do ministry there. And it's on this preaching tour that the first story we're going to dig into today takes place. So check it out, Mark 1, starting in verse 40. He says, and a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And so here's the picture. Man with leprosy comes to Jesus, which means that he had some type of skin disease. All right, back in biblical times, leprosy not only referred to the disease we think about when we think of leprosy, it's called Hansen's disease. You know, it causes sores on a person's skin, paralysis, nerve damage. Over time, you can become disfigured, even lose limbs. Leprosy referred to that, uh, but it also referred to a whole category of skin diseases, It would include things like psoriasis, lupus, ringworm, the list goes on and on and on. Now, because it was so difficult in biblical times to determine what type of skin disease a person had, the Old Testament laid out some very specific instructions for examining and isolating these diseases. And if you want to read those instructions in detail, you can find them in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. Uh, I'm not going to go there right now. I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version, all right? Here are the instructions. If you had a sore or a rash pop up on your skin, you wouldn't go to a doctor, you'd go to the priest. And the priest would examine you, and if he determined you had some type of leprosy, he would declare you unclean. And you then had to do some very specific things. You had to isolate or quarantine yourself, you had to wear torn clothing. You couldn't fix your hair. You had to cover the bottom part or the lower portion of your face. And anytime anyone came in your direction, you had to shout out unclean as a warning to them not to get too close. Now, that sounds miserable, doesn't it? But as long as you had leprosy, that was your life. You were treated as a social and religious outcast, cut off from God and his people, because in the ancient world, leprosy was often equated with being a consequence of your own sin. And so think about this, like if you woke up tomorrow and had eczema 
or maybe athlete's foot. Just wear your flip-flops in the shower at the gym, all right? Just a, that's some free advice for you today. You don't need that. But if you woke up with it tomorrow, people in the ancient world would naturally conclude you had done something sinful, something evil, and this was God punishing you for whatever you had done. And the only way you were going to be healed was if God forgave you. And so we have to understand that what we're dealing with in our passage is not just a physical issue, it is a spiritual one. Are you with me? Now, with that said, think back to this guy. Think back to the scene. We have this guy with a skin disease coming, and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. And he just starts imploring me. He's begging him, Jesus, would you do something in my life to change my situation? And his statement again, I love this, what faith, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, when I read that, part of me wonders what this guy really wanted from Jesus. You know, was he simply asking Jesus to heal him of this disease that had ravaged and destroyed his physical body, or was he asking Jesus to go deeper than that? Well, the reality is we don't really know. All we know is that Jesus went deeper because Jesus understood this man's greatest need, and his greatest need was not physical cleansing, it was spiritual cleansing. And we'll keep making sense of that, so keep reading. All right, verse 41 I love these first three words, moved with pity. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now in these few verses, we get a picture of both the mercy and the power of Jesus. And we see his mercy in this, that he actually touched the untouchable. Back last fall, I had an armadillo come into my yard, and he tore my yard to pieces. I officially hate those little hard-shelled animals now. Still have holes everywhere. It was frustrating. And so I set out to catch him. And I was ready to do whatever it took to catch this little thing until one of my friends informed me that armadillos carry leprosy. Did you guys know this? Disgusting. Well, that changed the game for me, obviously, right? No longer was I going to touch this animal because I didn't know if I touched him, if if I could get leprosy from him. I say that to say this. Jesus touching this guy was unthinkable. Everybody knew you don't touch somebody with leprosy because if you touch somebody with leprosy, you can get leprosy. In addition, the Mosaic law says that if a clean person touches an unclean person, regardless of who they are, well, that person who touched them now becomes unclean. And all the same rules that apply to them now apply to you. So that begs the question, why did Jesus touch this guy? Why didn't he do it a different way? I mean, he he could have just spoken healing over this guy's life and been done with it, right? But he doesn't. He touches him. Why in the world would he touch him? Well, the answer is simple. This touch was a display of Jesus' mercy and compassion toward this broken, hurting man. I love what John Calvin says about this moment in his commentary on the book of Mark. Look. He says, by his word alone, he might have touched the leper, but he applied at the same time the touch of his hand to express the feeling of compassion. Nor ought this to excite our wonder since he chose to take upon him our flesh that he might cleanse us from our sins. The stretching out of his hand was therefore an expression and token of his infinite grace and goodness. What we lazily read and coldly pass by cannot be duly weighed without great astonishment. The Son of God was so far from disdaining to talk to a leper that he even stretched out his hand to touch 
that uncleanness. Look, that amazement and astonishment these people must have experienced in that moment as Jesus reached out. I mean, I can just picture people going, don't do it, don't do it, don't. Oh my gosh, he just did it, right? He touched the guy. That amazement and that astonishment is the same amazement and astonishment we should experience every time we think about the lengths to which Jesus has gone to touch our lives. Because the reality is our sin is a lot like his leprosy. It goes deeper than the skin. It spreads, it defiles and isolates us. And according to the scriptures, it renders things fit for the fire. Are you with me? Yet Jesus, this perfect, sinless son of God, what did he do 2,000 years ago? Well, he put on our flesh and he came to be with us. And he did it in order to meet our greatest need so that our lives could be changed forever. But doing so, look, doing so not only required mercy, it required power. And as I said a moment ago, we see his power in this passage as well. We see it in this, that he cured the incurable. In the ancient world, there was no human cure for leprosy, which is why lepers were forced to isolate themselves, either to die alone or to be healed by God. And so I want you to think about the implications of this with me. Jesus touches this man, but instead of Jesus becoming defiled and unclean, the man becomes undefiled and clean. Jesus has such purity in him that he completely repels this man's filth and corruption. And he has such power in him that he contracts no filth and corruption from the man at all. So let's think logically about this. What does that imply about Jesus? What implies that he's God, right? As we talked about a few weeks ago, it implies that he holds the authority over both physical things and spiritual things, that that he's the one with necessary power to cleanse defiled people, not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. And again, this is great news for us as 21st century people today, because like leprosy in the ancient world, there is no cure for, for sin, no human cure for sin, I should say. I mean, you can try to heal yourself of whatever sin issues are in your life. Uh, You can try to heal yourself of whatever uh, sin consequences are in your life. But the fact of the matter is nothing you do will ever work. Unless Jesus shows up in power and does something to cure you, it's there to stay. But look, when Jesus does it, when he sets you free and he changes your life, that's when your life begins to serve as proof to the world of who he is and what he's capable of. And that was absolutely uh, intended to be the case in this man's life. I mean, we read it a moment ago, but after Jesus heals him, he sternly charges him. Hey, hey, listen, look, don't go out of here telling people what I've done for you. Do not leave and, and make a fuss about what's happened in your life. Don't do that yet. What I want you to do instead is I want you to go to the priest and I want you to show yourself to him and, and then I want you to offer uh, sacrifices for your cleansing according to Moses' command. So the instruction was this. Go to the priest and, and follow the process laid out in the Mosaic law. You can find it in Leviticus 14. This was a process that formerly unclean people would go through to be declared clean. Jesus says, I want you to do that as proof to them. As a proof to them. What in the world does that mean? As a proof to them. Well, many Bible scholars see two possibilities in that statement. The first is that Jesus was simply saying to this guy, hey, go prove to the priest that you're actually clean so that they can restore you back to God and his people. But there's a second possibility, and I really like this possibility because it fits in with the book of Mark and and who we know Jesus to be. The second possibility is this, that Jesus was sending this guy to the priest 
to prove to them that God was working in the world in a brand new way through him. You see, Jesus understood that if this guy went to the priest and they declared him clean while rejecting the one who cleansed him, in essence, they were rejecting Jesus as God, right? Because who heals leprosy? God. And when does God heal leprosy? After he forgives. And so hear me, this demonstration over disease was really a demonstration of Jesus' ability to meet man's greatest need, his spiritual need. And it seems to me when I read this uh, that Jesus really wanted the priests of his day to take notice. Well, the unfortunate thing is this guy didn't obey. He didn't do what Jesus asked him to do. And, and you can see it play out in verse 45. Instead of going to the priest, he actually runs out and he just starts telling everybody, look what happened, look what happened, I'm finally clean, right? And, and so Mark says as a result, Jesus' popularity grew even greater. Uh, the crowd started pursuing him even more. Couldn't open a town without, without crowds and crowds of people coming to him. And that's what we see playing out yet again in the beginning of Mark 2. Check it out. Mark 2, verse 1. He says, and when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And so Mark lets us know here that Jesus is done with the preaching tour, right? Uh, he's left Galilee, Galilee behind, and after some time, he's come back to the town of Capernaum. And he's in someone's house, probably Peter's house. That's the most logical answer. And he's preaching to a crowd of people so large that you couldn't get another human being inside the door of this place. And as Jesus is preaching, uh, a group of guys, four of them specifically, are, are carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, now, during this time, I need you to know, leprosy was viewed much in the same way as leprosy. Or, I'm sorry, paralysis was viewed in much the same way as leprosy, in that people saw it as a consequence of your sin. You did something evil, somebody in your family did something evil, and so God paralyzed you to punish you. And so I need you to hear me. Again, we're dealing not just with a physical issue here, but a spiritual one. So these guys show up. Just imagine this. They, they walk around the corner, they see the house, and uh, it's packed. And they realize there's no way we're getting our boy to Jesus by conventional means. We're going to have to make our own way in. They decide to take extreme measures, right? In ancient Israel, houses were typically built with flat clay roofs. And there was always a staircase on the side of the house that led up to the roof. People would often sleep there at night or relax there if it was a nice day outside. And so I just imagine one of the guys going, dude, we're going up the staircase, right? And so they head up and they get on their hands and knees and they start digging through the roof of someone else's house. I cannot imagine Peter was too happy about that. But this is how desperate these men were to get their friends to Jesus. And I love Jesus' response. Look at this. This is one of my favorite verses in this entire passage. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, when he saw their faith, so just picture it, right? Here's this big open hole in the roof of this home. Jesus is seated below. There's now this paralyzed man laying on the ground in front of him. And he looks up and there are these guys looking down at Jesus and their friend, just wondering what's going to happen. And the Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, not his faith, but their faith. Every time I read that, the question like comes to mind. If the salvation of other people depended on our faith, would people be getting saved? 
If people's lives being changed depended on our faith, would the lives of other people be changed? I don't have time to get into that day. I wish I did because that'll preach all day, but that's a different message for a different day. But if anything, I just want to ask us to do this. Can we ask God to give us the same kind of desperation we see in these men? That desperation to do anything we can possibly do to get our friends to Jesus because we're so convinced that he can change their lives even when their lives seem beyond repair. I want to ask you, leave here and just pray for Crosspoint that that we would be a people uh, that, that believe so faithfully that Jesus can do anything for anyone that in our desperation and belief we would do whatever it takes to get people we love and know to the one we love and know. Can we do that? Jesus saw their faith. Their faith. And he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want you to just think with me about the significance of this, all right? In the story of the leper, Jesus demonstrates his ability to forgive sin by healing the man. Right? You with me? It makes sense? In this story, the story of the paralytic, Jesus declares his ability to forgive sins. Your sins are forgiven forgiven. Now, again, when I read that, I wonder what did that guy laying on the floor think in that moment? I just wish I could like be in some of these stories that we see in these passages. I wonder if that guy thought when he heard that, well, geez, thanks Jesus, but that's not really why I'm here, right? Don't know if you've noticed, but my legs don't work. I would really love to walk. And so uh, if we can talk about that, man, I'd love to have a conversation. We don't know. All we know is this, that Jesus was not content with simply addressing a physical issue. Why? Because Jesus knew his greatest need went deeper than that. Jesus knew that this man's greatest need was not to walk out the front door. His greatest need was to have his sins forgiven. Now look, I've been alluding to this the entire message, but I'm just going to slow down and address it so that we can all be really clear and not miss it when we leave today, all right? I need us to understand that our greatest need as people is the same need we see in both these stories, the leper and the paralytics. And if you're taking notes, you can write it down. Our greatest need is this, to have our sins forgiven. There's nothing in life we need more than this. If you have every other need met in your life, but this one need goes unmet, then then your life is wasted. The greatest need in all of our lives is to have our sins forgiven. Now, I do realize that if you're new to church and new to Jesus and and new to this whole Bible thing, that could possibly, possibly be, excuse me, highly offensive for you. Because in our culture today, sin has become such a loaded word, right? It's often equated with morality and normality. So if someone calls you a sinner, the belief is, well, they just called me abnormal and morally corrupt. Well, can I just tell you today, and we all need to understand this, that that you can be normal by worldly standards and morally acceptable by cultural standards. And at the end of the day, you're still a sinner. And so am I. Tim Keller, in his book, Jesus the King, he gives a great definition of sin that really puts this in perspective. Here's what he says. He says, when the Bible talks about sin, it is not just referring to the bad things we do. It's not just lying or lust or whatever the case may be. It is ignoring God in the world he has made. It's rebelling against him by living without reference to him. It's saying, I will decide exactly how I want to live my life. Now, look up here. Can we just all have an honest moment and agree on this? We're all guilty, aren't we? 
Every single one of us, every single one of us in the room has had moments or even seasons in life when, when we have completely ignored God and looked to the things of this world in hopes that other things can somehow serve as our savior. And the reality of that goes back to the mindset we talked about earlier, right? If I can just get that thing, I'll finally be content. If I can just have what I want, it will save me. I need you to know nothing in this world can save you. Nothing in this world can heal your discontent. The only thing that can save you and heal you is having your sins forgiven by God. And according to what Jesus says in the passage, he's that God who alone forgives sins. We see the proof of this in the response of these religious leaders. Check it out. Verse 7. These guys, some of the scribes, they were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Amen. They're speaking the truth right there, right? Listen, this is where trouble begins in the book of Mark for Jesus. We're going to see it intensify in the coming weeks. Uh, but these religious leaders that he keeps interacting with, they will over time begin to hate him more and more. And they'll even start to plot his murder, his, his uh, crucifixion. But this is where it all begins. And the reason they start hating him and they want to kill him is because he keeps doing what they deem as blasphemy. Everywhere he goes, he keeps claiming to be God. Now, I know that some of us were probably looking at this and we're going, where does he say that, James? Like maybe you're new to the Bible or you're the skeptic in the room who thinks all this is dumb and you're ready for it to be over so you can go get lunch. And you're going, I don't see that. He didn't say that. All he said was that this guy's sins are forgiven. James, aren't you reading into that a little bit? Weren't those religious leaders reading into that a little bit? And, and I would say to you, that is a fair question. And it's a really, really good question. But I would say, no, nobody was reading into it. And I will use an illustration to defend my answer, all right? Imagine that I punch Kyle, our worship pastor, in the face, all right? I decide I don't like his new haircut, so I just, pow, I blast him, right? <laughs> Hit him in the nose, break his nose, blood's everywhere, and you're standing there when it happens. Now, imagine a short time later, you come back to me and you say to me, hey, James, um, just wanted to let you know I forgive you for punching Kyle in the face, it's all good, bro. It's over. It's done. I, I forgive you. Well, if Kyle hears you say that, what is he going to say back to you? He's going to tell you that you can't forgive me. Why? Because you're not the one who got punched. Here's the point. Here's the point. You can only forgive an offense if the offense is committed against you. Sin is an offense committed against who? Against God. So hear me. For Jesus to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, what he was really saying was, I'm the one you've sinned against. I'm God and I forgive you. This is what separates Christianity from every other belief system and religion in the world. As Christians, we don't see Jesus as just some moral teacher, as a great prophet sent into the world by God. We believe that Jesus is God and apart from him, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's the claim that made these religious leaders so furious. I mean, they could believe that, that Jesus would actually suggest that he could forgive sins because they knew what it insinuated. And I love it. Jesus knows it. And so he decides to have some fun. Look at his response. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And so the question, it's a real simple one, right? Guys, 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 I know what you're thinking. I know you're mad. So let me just ask you, what's easier? Is it easier for me to say to this guy, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier for me to heal him of his paralysis? Well, obviously, the implication of that question is it's a whole lot easier just to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. Whole lot harder to actually heal a man who's been paralyzed for years and years. And so Jesus says, I'll tell you what I'll do, all right? I will demonstrate my authority to support my declaration. And then he looks at this guy laying on the ground, another moment where, you know, I wish I could have been there. And he says to him, uh, hey, why don't you get up, grab your bed, go home. Just, just go ahead and stand up, take your stuff, get, get out of here. And he does. Just like, I mean, not over time, like immediately, right? It wasn't like he had to kind of work out some kinks. It was just like, all right, cool, thanks, Jesus, you know, and he just takes off. And all the people, they're amazed. And, oh, my gosh, we've never seen anything like this. But hear me, that wasn't the greatest miracle in the passage. The greatest miracle in this passage was not a paralyzed man walking out the front door. The greatest miracle in the passage was the God of the universe meeting a sinner in his greatest time of need and meeting his greatest need, which was to have his sins forgiven. And so with all that said, one question remains, so what? So great story, so what? What does this have to do with us today? I mean, if our need is truly the same need that these guys had, and if Jesus is the only one who can meet it, how in the world should we respond to this? Well, I'm gonna give you two responses and then we'll be done, all right? Number one is this. We all have to recognize our greatest need. Response one, you as an individual have to recognize your greatest need. I want you to think back to that original question. If you could ask God for anything and you knew he'd give it to you, what would you ask for? What would you ask for? Next question. Does your answer fall into the category of physical, emotional, relational, financial, or is what you're asking for something spiritual? And here's why I ask the question. Because if if you're asking for something that goes here, your greatest need is not what you think it is. Because none of these former categories go deep enough. Some of you know this from your own experience, but you can have physical health, emotional health, relational health, financial stability, and still be the most miserable person on the face of the planet. And why? Because lasting joy and contentment, which none of those things can give you, they are spiritual issues. And you can't address spiritual issues with earthly temporary fixes. It's like trying to shove a a square peg into a round hole, you know? And if that doesn't make sense to you, just think about it the other way around. Imagine you come to me and you haven't eaten in weeks, like you're starving. And I say to you, all right, I really want to help you, so sit down. I've prepared a great message on eating. And I start preaching, right? If I start preaching and I give you spiritual advice when what you really need is to get in the car and go to Chick-fil-A, God bless the Christian chicken, what, what good, what good is that going to do for you? Not much, right? And look, the same is true spiritually. If you spend your entire life trying to fulfill earthly desires because you somehow believe that those desires represent your greatest need, you're wasting your time and you're wasting your life because your greatest need is your spiritual need, your need to have your sins forgiven by God. Now, that brings me to response number two. After you recognize your greatest need, you have to ask Jesus to meet that need. You have to ask Jesus to meet that need. 
Now, I'm fully aware that a lot of us in the room, we've probably done this. And so we might be thinking, well, great, I could have stayed in the bed today. This message obviously isn't for me. This message is for all those heathen people in the room who haven't done what I've done, right, by asking Jesus to forgive me. No, look, this message is for you too. And, and it's for me too. Because let's be honest, even though you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to become your savior, aren't there still times when you turn from him back to the functional saviors that this world places in front of you? You lose your wonder of the cross. And you start to forget about God's great love for you. That incredible news of of the God of the universe and his mercy and compassion wrapping himself in flesh to die for you. Being crushed under the weight of your own sin so that you could be forgiven, loved, and accepted by God. Doesn't that news become stale and familiar at times? And so what happens is, as a result, you start leaving Jesus behind and, and you stop being amazed at, at the fact that the greatest need in your life has been met by a merciful God. And so you start looking again to all these things out in the world in hopes that they'll give you the joy and contentment that only he offers. If that's where you find yourself today, I just want to say to you, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember what he's done for you. Remember the sins in your life that he forgave. Like, I don't know if I'm the only guy that has these moments, but I'll often have moments when I think about my life and all the stuff I've done. And I think about the fact that God had this desire to take hold of me. Like he wanted James Griffin. And he reached out and he touched my life and he did something to me that I could never do for myself. When you think about that on a daily basis, doesn't it recapture your wonder all over again? Some of us need that that wonder back today, don't we? And so I'm just saying, remember Jesus, but don't just remember him. Come to God in repentance and pray and ask him to restore that amazement and wonder for you. So that you can remember, not only today, but tomorrow and the next day, that he has met your greatest need. Now look, I would say to you, if if you haven't done this, if there's never been a point in your life at which you've asked Jesus to be your savior and to forgive you of your sins, my question for you is, is simply this, what's stopping you? What's stopping you? Is there any good reason uh, that you wouldn't today ask Jesus to meet your greatest need? To heal your discontentment? To heal your hopelessness, your joylessness, uh, your meaninglessness. To come and to do a work in your life that only he can do. I just want to remind you today, God loves you deeply. Regardless of who you are or what you've done. And he put his son on a cross to prove it. You don't have to change your life or fix yourself before coming to him. He invites you to come just as you are. He takes care of the rest. Your only job, look, your only job is to come in faith asking Jesus to meet your greatest need. If there's nothing stopping you from doing that right now, I want to help you do it, all right? So let's just bow our heads all over the room. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And as they come, if, if that's you, if you walked in the door today and you know you're that person who has been looking to all these other things and all these other people to somehow save you out of despair, joylessness, hopelessness, and nothing's changed and nothing's worked, but today you've heard about a Savior who offers all that you're looking for, and you know that right now what you need is Him. I want to help you say yes to Him, to a relationship with Him. So just right where you sit, in your seat, why don't you just pray right now quietly, just say to God, God, I need you. 
God, I need you to meet the greatest need in my life. I need to have my sins forgiven. And so, God, I'm I'm asking you right now to forgive them, past, present, and future, all of them. I put my faith in Jesus as the Savior who alone has paid for my sin. I believe that he laid his life down on the cross and, and he suffered the punishment of my sin so that I could be loved and forgiven by you. And God, I also believe that Jesus rose from the dead to conquer sin for me so that I could experience new life here on the earth and eternal life with you one day. And so God, right now, I'm I'm asking you, would you take hold of my life? Wash away my sin forever. I say yes to Jesus. Listen, with head still bowed and eyes still closed all over the room, I want to ask you to do me a simple favor. If you just prayed with me and you put your faith in Jesus for the first time today, and would you simply acknowledge that by just lifting a hand? Just throw it up real high. James, that's me. Put my faith in Jesus for the first time. Ask him to forgive me of my sins today. Just keep it up. Our prayer team's going to come, and they're going to put a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. Just keep it up for just a moment. They're on their way. They're on their way. Anybody else, James, that's me, put my faith in Jesus today. Awesome, awesome, awesome. For the rest of us, here's what we're going to do. The band, they're going to come and they're going to lead us. And we're going to respond in whatever way God is leading us to respond. But I have to believe in a room of this size with this many people, some of us need our wonder back. Some of us have shown up today and we've lost sight of what God has done in our lives through his son, Jesus. And so we just want to open this time up. And as we sing, I would encourage you to pray. If our prayer team can pray for you, we'd love to do that. If you need to come and just kneel at the front of this room as an altar before the Lord, we'll lay a hand on you and pray over your life. Whatever God is calling you to do today, do it. Don't walk out of this place without responding. God, in the next few moments, would you just pour out your presence in this place? God, let your spirit move. Work in us in ways that only you can. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.